0: Hello and welcome back to the Archives Our Incomplete, episode 41. This is going to be the last episode of season The Clone Wars, season 2. I don't know if you've been keeping track, we just made that up in like the last week or two. This is the end of season 2 then. Anyways, we are reading The Last Jedi by Michael Reeves and Maya Catherine Bonhoff. Technically this is not part of the Coruscant Knights trilogy, but it really is. It's book four. It's the capstone to that series. As always, we're going to begin with the blurb on the back of the book. Order 66 has all but exterminated the Jedi. The few remaining have been driven into exile or hiding, but not Jax Pavan, who's been steadily striking blows against the Empire as a lone guerrilla fighter and a valued partner of Whiplash, a secret Coruscant-based resistance group. Now he's transporting a valued whiplash leader targeted for assassination from Coruscant to safety on a distant world. It's a risky move under any circumstances, but Jax and his trusted crew are prepared to pit their combat skills and their vessel's firepower against all Imperial threats, except the one Jax fears most, Darth Vader. And Jax knows that Vader will stop at nothing until the last Jedi has fallen. So, Jax is kind of hiding... Like, it it says that he's not, but he is. He's just being hunted. He's being bad at being in hiding. Uh, being a, quote, lone gorilla, kind of runs counter to, quote, partner of Whiplash and leader of his own cell. They're also prepared to pit themselves against Vader, and they're not prepared to pit their vessel's firepower against literally any Imperial vessel. They're just like, nope, that has lasers. We're not going to fight that. We're a freighter. Like, they're not ready to take on a Star Destroyer or even a cruiser or a frigate or anything. They they Their goal is to escape and hide and avoid detection and sabotage and do small things. Now, this does only set up the prologue, so it can't go too far wrong. So, despite all of that, and despite the mockery in my tone, genuinely one of the better blurbs on the back of the book that we've read so far. So, should you read it? It's surprising how much... I've enjoyed the other works by Michael Reeves, particularly Shadowhunter and the MedStar duology, how much I don't enjoy this and the rest of Coruscant Nights. Read it if you're reading everything, or if you've read and enjoyed the rest of the series and want some closure. There's also a little bit of lore on Cephalons and the Dathomiri, which I actually really enjoyed. It gives some more shape to those other cultures, but there's not actually a whole, it's like maybe two or three pages, and I would not recommend reading the 460 pages for those few pages of details. I'm not saying skip it, but I'm definitely not recommending it. So, what are we going to talk about? Well, we're going to talk about the plot as per usual, and my critiques of it in general, which is a little bit less frequent. We'll talk about Vader, how huh, Jax, the shape of the Rebellion, as well as, you know, our generic bits and bobs as we go through things. Now, to begin with the plot. We start with the gang, Larenth, Den, I-5, and Jax, because everybody else is dead or gone, uh, transporting thi on Yemen to safety off of Coruscant. thi on Yemen is, of course, the leader of Whiplash or the leader of the Whiplash cell on Coruscant, Whiplash being that branch of the Resistance. This story takes place almost entirely off of the capital planet, off of Imperial City, which is a change of pace from the rest of the Coruscant Night series and probably why it's not part of, you know, Coruscant Knights, because it doesn't take place on Coruscant. Anyways, they manage to successfully arrive on Toprawa on their way to Dantuin. Larenth and Jax discuss the possibility of setting up on Toprawa. There's more life, and so they can feel more connected to the force, and there's less empire and more friends, so it's reasonable. And they begin to make a plan to move off of Coruscant. Then they head back from whence they can to head to their final destination, they're doubling back on themselves to fool anybody who's tracking them. However, they've been betrayed by someone and are ambushed by Imperials. It's like 20 or more hyper-capable ships for a single freighter. This seems like overkill and a waste of resources. It's lampshaded like Jax calls it out and it's just like, 20 ships is a lot! Uh, But it's also kind of in character for Hader. Why use one ship when you have 20? Jax does some fancy flying, but is outflanked and boarded by Imperials, including a one Darth Vader. In the closing moments of combat between the two vessels, Laranth tries to blast Vader's cruiser, it explodes on her, and Jax is split between saving her and Thies on Yemen. Uh, from the prophecy towards the end of the previous book, I believe, from one of the Cephalons, Uh, Jax remembers the line, choice is loss, indecision is all loss. It might be at the beginning of this one, kind of starts to blur together. And he doesn't remember until afterwards, but that's the general gist of this. He doesn't decide between these on Yimmin and Larenth, and in fact loses both of them. He hesitates, Larenth is killed in the confrontation with Vader, Yimmin is captured, and despite having previously done his level best to capture Jax alive, like the previous three books were all capture Jax Pavin alive at all costs. Vader decides to leave him alive on his ship, along with I-5 and Den, so that their vessel will crash into a nearby sun and explode, killing them all. So apparently the first three books of the series are, I mean, the whole point of Vader wanting Jax alive, no longer relevant. Uh, However, they are rescued by their escort from Toprawa that came into the system after them, uh, and they are not dropped into the sun and incinerated. That would have maybe been a better story. Anyways, they arrive at Top Rawa with I-5 being just ahead, he was decapitated during the fight. Jax depressed, Larenth dead, and Dender unsure of what to do. I-5 gets a new body, at first he gets a pit droid, and then an R2 unit that he can swamp between. Later on he's gonna get a weaponized protocol droid shell, and even later he gets a human replica droid shell, uh, HRD. Jax gets flirted at a little bit by Sasha Swiftbird, who is an ex-pod racer and a member of the Resistance cell here on Top Rawa. He's also offered the opportunity to be the commander of a starfighter wing. From my understanding, he's flown a freighter once, like he's never really left Coruscant and put a lot of practice flying. And he's not a military leader, or has any military experience, doesn't know how to fly a fighter. He did lead his cell of, like, four investigators on a couple, like, murder mysteries, but I don't think that makes him necessarily, like, you know, Starfighter Squadron or wing pilot. No, For reference, for those of you who aren't familiar with military terms or how they are referenced within Star Wars canon, uh, usually a Starfighter Squadron is 12 vessels and a wing is, I want to say, between two and six squadrons, and so he'd have a lot of people under his command. But, hey, he's a young Jedi fighting against Vader, so he's gotta be just like Luke, I guess? I don't... I think that's where the authors are going. Like, they have this idea of all Jedi are great starfighter pilots because we have Anakin, we have Luke, we have Obi-Wan. Those are the ones that we really see in the movies. And then just like, yeah, he can be a pilot, too, in addition to a detective and somebody who can... I mean, I don't understand how he can lose to Aura Singh and... uh, She's or in, like, books 1 and 2, and then go toe-to-toe with Vader, and I, it's inconsistent. Anyways, Jax wants to focus the Rebellion's res- resources on finding and rescuing Yimin, and maybe throw in a little bit of vengeance for Lantern's deaths. Uh, the three survivors of the squad, Jax, Den, and I-5, get a new ship to return to Corsant. Uh, some of Vader's ships went back to the capital, others went by way of Mandalorian, so they're trying to figure out where Vader is, where on Yemen is, what they should do. Den and Jax agree that their new ship obviously has to be named Larenth. But immediately afterwards, when they head towards Coruscant, they're like, we can't have the ship named Larenth, because if it's officially named Larenth, people will be like, oh, that Jax Pavan guy that we are looking for, he was hanging out with a chick named Larenth, that's probably him. Let's check it out. So they call it the Corsair, and the book calls it the Corsair, except for when, like, we need to have an emotional appeal of Jax's connection to the ship. And so it, it's not really called Larenth by anyone. Even when they leave Coruscant and they're landing on Mandalore, and the Mandalorians don't care who Jax is or Larenth is. They're like, yeah, this is the uh, Corsair. Apparently, furthermore, Jack still hasn't changed his name, which is problematic because the Empire is still hunting him, although he's now maybe presumed dead, or at least he assumes he's presumed dead, which just seems like a big old loop. Anyways, when they get back to Coruscant, Toodin Sol, who was one of the leaders of Whiplash on the planet, and previously, 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 betrayed uh, Lorne Pavin back in Shadowhunter, uh, he believes that chasing down Yemen is a waste of time and wants Jax to help focus on his mission, taking down Emperor Palpatine. Tutan Saul feels. Weekly written he's nominally a good guy and a hero to the resistance but every interaction he has is someone being like hey your plan is bad and it seems like you're doing this for vengeance and his response is like no it's good and i'm doing it because it's good because killing the emperor will bring peace and prosperity to the galaxy without any real demonstration of it being good and i don't understand how he got to this position of power well okay kind of do and i'll get on that a little bit later when we hit the analysis portion of this chat. Anyways, when we finally get to Tootin's realization that he's been doing it out of a sense of vengeance, because Palpatine ruined his career and life after Shadowhunter, it's been obvious to the reader the whole time he's just a narrow-minded moron, not a complex character, despite being poised as one. Now, on Coruscant, there's no sign of Yemen, but more Inquisitors are being sent off-planet to Mandalore, so Jax, Den, and I-5 follow, especially when there's indications that Vader is going that way himself. With the absence of Vader and the Inquisitors, Tudensal sees this as the optimal time to strike at Palpatine and begins pushing for his plan with the remaining leaders of Whiplash on Coruscant. On their way to Mandalore, Jackson calms back and contacts Tudensal to ask for Black Sun contacts on the planet of Mandalore and gets them. Black Sun, of course, likes working in the shadows, not making a scene, and not really having outright warfare. They like, you know, slowly taking over criminal organizations and that sort of thing. And so, they decide to go to Mandalore, which is a very close-knit community of warriors and bounty hunters who generally strive to remain independent and not associated with any given organization. Furthermore, their presence on Mandalore uh, dominates the Oyubot, which you may remember from the Republic Commando series as the most popular tavern in Keldabe, the capital of Mandalore, which practically functions as the Mandalorian seat of government. Really, this reads as though the authors want to use Mandalorians as muscle loyal only to money with no culture strings attached. And, like, they read a couple things on the wiki and they're like, great, we got it. Everything's set up, we don't have to worry about it. Pew pew, everybody's Boba Fett. And, uh, I mean, you've heard me ramble before, I'm a big fan of them Mandalorians, particularly the ones that are from the Republic Commando series. And this is really doing them a big disservice, so I'm not a huge fan of this portrayal of the culture. Jax has some back and forths and eventually accepts a deal, offering to trade a nugget of Pyronium for the information that he needs to infiltrate the Imperial base and discover it. On a second or third visit, it's revealed that Prince Xizor is behind the curtain, literally, and doesn't want the Pyronium, but a favor to be redeemed later with no specifications. Again, this feels like I want to use this cool character, even though it doesn't really fit. Shizor wants to raise himself in the eyes of the Empire and be a confidant to Palpatine, Source, the first book in this series, and now he's going to help Jax find Vader and bust a rebel leader out of Imperial prison? Doesn't really make sense. Jax gets the general location, an asteroid belt in the Bothoe system, and uses the Force to find it when they are in system. He tracks down where Yemen is but recognizes that they can't get in without access codes, and those come with Black Sun Smugglers. So they go back to Mandalore, he cedes the favor to Shizor, and everything is set up to go, Jax is on the ship, and the mission is cancelled, because the distraction that Shizor fabricated was a rumor of an attack on Palpatine to get Vader off the station. Turns out, since Saul is actually doing that, Shizor doesn't want to be linked with an actual attack and breakout linked together. Jax throws a force fit and leaves Mandalore with Dan and I-5 and the Corsair, headed back to Toprawa. They agree to regroup and settle in for the night, and instead of doing that, Jax steals an Aether Sprite 7, refurbished Jedi Starfighter, and heads back to Kantaro Station in the Bothway Sector. Now, speaking of Tudensal, Pole House, the police prefect, tried to prevent strategic information from reaching Tudensal because he and a few other leaders of Whiplash disagreed with Tudensal's strategy. Tudin ejects pole from Whiplash and proceeds with his plan anyways. As a reminder, uh, Tudin Salt is a Sakian like Admiral Blade in the MedStar duology and Family Pride is hugely important to them, which is what Palpatine undermined back in Shadowhunter over a decade previously. Now, one of the other leaders of Whiplash used the information of the attack in a negotiation with another smuggler to seal a deal. She of course gives that information to her contacts in the Black Sun for money, because she doesn't know it's necessarily a resistance operation, and even if she did, she wouldn't necessarily care. She'd actually probably sell that information to the Imperials. She just knows that there's going to be an attempt made on Palpatine's life. So good job with the operational security, Rebels. Anyways. Paul House furthermore realizes that more security units are being pulled into the Emperor's villa through non routine means and it's escaping Tutan Saul's overview. He tries to convey that information but is rebuffed and ignored. Around the same time, Vader has returned to Coruscant because of the threat on Palpatine, and Probus Tesla has been put in charge of the Kantaro station with instructions to observe but not interact with their Syrian prisoners, these on Yemen. He ignores this, and much of his probing is rebuffed, but eventually he dives into Yimin's mind and discovers that his defense, Yimin's defense, is based on his split brain being able to support itself. As they are trying to probe one part of his brain, he's able to essentially build shields with his other brain, mental walls and that sort of thing, and just buttress it, and they can really only attack one place at a time because they only have one mind and he essentially has two and so he's able to run circles around both vader and probus Uh, now through this probus determines that a surgical disconnect would remove that buttressing but leave his intelligence attacked essentially leave his intelligence and knowledge intact but not his willpower Uh, Throughout all of this, given mostly sasses Probus and gets him to start to question himself and his relationship with Vader and all sorts of stuff, and be kind of interesting if Probus just wasn't an idiot and a failure of a character. Uh, Probus, you know, just hasn't really succeeded in any of his missions and is like, I want to be trusted by my Sith Master. And that's kind of, again, like that's antithetical to the Sith. You don't want your Master to trust you because you know that they should not trust you and they know they shouldn't trust you. You want them to fear you, to not trust. You want respect. Anyways, 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 Jax, floating around Kantara Station, realizes that he can't go in on his own, so he meditates and gets a message from the Cephalons, again, those fourth-dimensional beings that can see all points in time all at once. Uh, and the message he receives from them is to, quote, seek the sisters, the only sisters that Jax can think of are the Grey Paladins which I don't believe were primarily women I just think he was a bunch of Jedi who are like what if we use blasters in addition to lightsabers and like practice using things other than the force anyways um, the only ones you can think of other than the Grey Paladins are the Dathomiri which is he heads there to Dathomir and there's a bit more exploration of some stuff that apparently happened in the comics and some YA books Uh, But he is escorted by one of the witches to the ruins of the Star Temple, uh, which is essentially a big old excess of Force energy. He realizes that to open the Sith holocron that he's been carrying around since, like, the end of Book 1 meaninglessly, he must spill the blood of a Force user on it. We're supposed to be set up to think that he's gonna sacrifice the Dathomiri witch that he's with... And it, it is a neat lock, because a lightsider, lightsider, in theory, won't kill an innocent, which is what a Sith would do, and so only a Sith has access to the Holocron. Of course, Jax just asks for a bunch of volunteers to each donate a small amount, which seems like a pretty straightforward workaround, and exactly what the Jedi would do as soon as they discovered, oh, we have to spill some blood on it. What if everybody just gave a drop? Cool, that's enough. Fantastic, let's crack it open. He does access the holocron and gains a ton of knowledge and access to power. He's able to create force projections that act as programmed illusions that are able to fool other force users. He's able to apparently observe the flow of time and send projections forward and back and maybe access different moments in time. He gets this huge power that he's been wishing for just for the duration of this book uh, so he can go back and make a decision between Yemen and Lanth, but he never to my reading of the book, manipulates time other than to send a projection into the future to talk with uh, the witch who helped him on Dathomir, and it was only a moment or two ahead in time. He, of course, doesn't want Vader getting this knowledge, uh, and he gains information about both Boda and Pyronium, which, again, have been two MacGuffins who've been floating around since essentially book one. I mean, the Boda was used up at the end of book three, but they've just been sitting around as props that haven't really been used in any meaningful way other than, everybody wants it! Uh, and apparently this holocron that's hundreds or thousands of years old, it has to be thousands, because I think for it to be a Sith that the Jedi know about, they would ha- he would have to predate Bane, so it's at least a thousand years old. And it conveniently has knowledge about both Boda, which wasn't really discovered to the best of my knowledge until bear sophie interacted with it during the clone wars and pyronium which is not mentioned anywhere else in star wars and so i don't know when the properties of pyronium have been explored or by whom and it's fascinating that nobody has thought like apparently this is the only source of information regarding either of these two items in the entire galaxy for the past millennium And they just happened to be in the hands of the one person who could use them. And they happened to be in the hands of his father a decade ago, which happened to carry information regarding the attack on... Like, it's just so wildly convenient and also unnecessary because so much... Like, the Boda information is unnecessary because there's no Boda. The time manipulation information is unnecessary because there's no actual manipulation. It's just like, why does this... Anyways... He obviously doesn't want Vader getting all of this knowledge and power that he suddenly has access to, uh, but he keeps—I think—he leaves the holocron with the witches on Dathomir, which, by the way, is a planet full of Force users that has several cults of Dark Side Force users, and the whole planet is known to Emperor Palpatine. So, I question the wisdom of his judgment in this moment. In any case, he does ask the witches to remove his memories and abilities to manipulate time when he returns, but it's still not great. He also learns from this that the Pyronium will hold and or reflect force power, and so he's able to project a full Imperial shuttle, powerfully enough to fool scanners, apparently, as well as several images of himself that are powerful enough to fool Inquisitors and Vader. I don't understand how this happened, but okay. In any case, Den, I-5, and Sasha, back on top of Rowan, determined that whether or not Jax is going to try and rescue Yumin, someone needs to. If Jax is doing it, they can provide backup, and if Jax isn't doing it, well, they gotta try anyways. So they set up their ship to look like a Black Sun smuggler. I-5 has the codes to get in, which he could have shared with Jax, but didn't for some reason. He picked them up when the black sun smugglers on mandalore were revving up their engines and communicating back and forth he hacked their systems got that information because i5 can hack anything i love the character but he can hack literally anything instantly so moving on uh they get merch from mandalore and have an authentic route from mandalore and then head to kantaros i5 is able to hack the station ia AI, to get a rough map, then goes into the military base section of the secret base instead of the apparently existent low-security civilian section of the secret military base, uh, and sees Yemen is being transferred somewhere else. Also, recognizes that Darth Vader is on station and is back and is probably going to cause problems. Den and Sasha knock out some guards, Sasha puts on some stormtrooper armor, and the two of them head to the med bay to save Yemen along with I-5. Once there, they encounter Probus Tesla and Jax, who has just arrived from Dathamir. There's a short fight. Uh, Sasha kills Probus with Ara Sing's old lightsaber. They flee with Yimin. Jax causes a distraction, allowing the other four to escape. While well, he tries to navigate to his fighter with the Pyronium, because he doesn't want to fall into Vader's hands, because it will make Vader too powerful. But also, the ship has a remote self-destruct. So, he's able to distract Vader and stay alive long enough for I-5 to show up in his human replica droid skin, looking essentially like a person, lugging a small blaster cannon. Uh, Vader cuts into I-5, apparently decapitating him again. There's also a burst of force energy during this encounter, which Jax assumes is I-5 for whatever reason, and later realizes that maybe it was Larent helping him from beyond death. This is, to my knowledge, a unique demonstration of power for a character who has become one with the Force, but not beyond reason. Jax grabs I-5's head, blows up the starfighter, which he didn't need to defend in the first place, grabs a courier vessel and gets out rendezvousing with Den, Sasha, and Yimin, and all five of them return to Taparawa. Before Jax left Toprawa, the Rebels there got news of Saul's assassination attempt of the Emperor. It was a horrific failure, causing the deaths of most of Whiplash's best field agents and most of their leadership structure with literally no gain. Pull House is almost caught by a fellow officer and would be turned into the ISB if not for Tudensal, who is who is a coward and wasn't even part of the attack and died afterwards, sacrificing his life to save Pull House. Pole and Shiel Mafin, a Togruta poet who's a member of the Resistance, are the remaining leadership of Whiplash on Coruscant. They discover that Tutin is actually the traitor. He's the one who leaked the information that allowed Vader to track down Yemen. He wanted Yemen and Jax on the run and in hiding so that he could enact his plan, literally undermining the rebellion so he could attempt to kill Palpatine. He's a moron, but I love this aspect of early rebellion that I'll get into soon. Now, Jax decides to return to Dathomir to recruit Magash, uh, the Dathomiri woman who meets his criteria for Apprentice. She's also the one who helped him previously. She's the one who guided him to the Star Temple and all of that. Uh, now, he's been a knight for like a year now, and he's like, yep, I'm ready for an Apprentice. Anyways, he then returns to adventures with I-5 and Dender. And I-5, even though he was apparently just the head of the Human Replica droid on Kantaro Station, now has the full body back. He can now scowl appropriately and it's never really explained how he got that body back, but whatever, we can just hand wave that. And that's pretty much the story. It absolutely ends just kind of open-ended with like, maybe there will be more adventures. There were never any more adventures. Anyways, let's move on to the analysis. I wanna start talking about the rebellion and the nascent resistance. One of my favorite things in this story, and we'll see it more here and there throughout the book set during the Galactic Civil War, Next, next, season, season four? Anyways, uh, we'll see the fractious nature of the Rebel Alliance. We can also see in the shows both Rebels and Andor. The Rebels aren't a monolithic or even a generally unified body. They have their cells and their aims and mostly just lots of independent groups that are striking out for resistance and rebellion on their planet or maybe their sector if they're on a larger scale. The number of rebels who are going from planet to planet and are traveling across the galaxy at this point in time are staggeringly few they are mostly guerrilla warfare against imperial bases because bases don't move and are easier to ambush and sabotage and it's really hard to take on a star destroyer without a fleet and if you are caught on a spaceship and don't have a way off space is very like you can't just run away you need a vehicle or vessel to hijack and it's much more dangerous whereas like you can just dig into a tunnel and hide in a tunnel and make a secret like but like if you have a bunker just floating in space they'll be like hey what's that big chunk of metal let's blow it up that's probably where the rebels are and then you die uh and so it's a lot easier to do stuff ground side Uh, Anyways, the point is, there isn't any unity or communication. The left hand doesn't know that the right hand even exists, much less what it's doing. That's what the Rebel Alliance was. It was founded much later than this, to help bring together those various anti-imperial factions into one organization that could have resources to compete with the Imperials. And even then, there were differences of opinion. What collateral damage is acceptable? Any? What targets or types of missions are morally justifiable? Should the focus be diplomacy? Should be propaganda? Should be military conquest? What are victory conditions? What should the command structure of the alliance look like? All of these questions are asked in other places and they're kind of brought up here and just presented as these are problems that people have to deal with. And I really like that because it's not some like, epic destined rebellion of freedom fighters who know what they're doing. It's just a bunch of people who are like, this is terrifying. I know that has to stop. I don't know how, but I'm gonna try my best. The rebellion is and was slapdash, and the fact that Tudensal undermines his own organization for what he sees as the correct direction highlights that. There's no good soldiers follow orders ideology, which At its worst is dangerous authoritarianism, but there's a reason most organizations have some sort of structure, and it's fascinating to see that grow and evolve. You'll see as we get into other books throughout the Galactic Civil War that there becomes more and more structure, cells kind of merge together, and eventually there is order, and eventually we get to the New Republic, and there's a very strict hierarchy. It's not authoritarian, but it's, you know, a government and military command structure. Um, There's also some continuation of the themes raised in the short story Incognito, which was at the end of Kenobi, where Jax and Larenth, in discussing the growing rebellion on Coruscant, recognize that they are very limited in who and how they can trust people. That the Empire is willing to make all sorts of sacrifices if it means they win in the end. They'll give information or sacrifice agents and missions to get a mole into the nascent rebellion. What's interesting is that Saul, in his planned attack on the Emperor, leans on his philosophy of the ends justified the means. That if we can kill the Emperor, that no matter the cost, that is a good thing because the Emperor will cause more damage than we possibly ever could. This isn't too surprising in and of itself. It's a common enough trope amongst freedom fighters and the exploration of morality among them. But what's important is the examination of what happens in the wake of the attack and i think it's explored relatively well in andor but i think it can be explored a little bit more comprehensively whether the attack succeeds or fails the empire can and will use it as an excuse and justification for much more stringent security measures and the common people having been attacked or harmed will accept that yoke because Tudensal's plan is just blow up the villa and maybe some buildings around it. Who cares? If we just detonate the whole peninsula, there's no way Palpatine can survive, no matter where he's on it. Uh whereas if it's a surgical attack on Palpatine, it's a lot harder to convince a shop owner that they're in as much danger as the Emperor that means that when there's a rise in security protocols where there's checkpoints, you have to go through a bunch of checkpoints just to get to your work every day, you get frustrated because it's not protecting you, it's protecting the elites. Whereas if there's an attack with collateral damage, those security measures are now actively protecting you because even though you are not the primary target, you know that these terrorists, these rebels, are not, they don't care to discriminate within their target selection, uh, and so that increases fear and plays directly into the emperor Empire's hands. Speaking of the Empire and their plans, I want to talk about Vader a little bit. At the very beginning of the story, uh, Jax is confident that Vader is dead, but that really falls flat as a narrative moment. If you're reading this book, you know Star Wars. You know that Vader is going to be alive and well many years from now, and so is alive and well now. Well, well is an arguable term for a Lord of the Sith who's, you know, constantly fueled by his own anger, hatred, rage, and pain, but he's doing okay for the extenuating pre-existing condition. It also undermines Jax's later confidence that Vader assumes that he is dead. We know that characters are wrong about those assumptions, and it doesn't, for me, create dramatic tension, it just highlights the flaws in the characters. Jax also labels Vader as his nemesis, and this is very much a, for me, it was a Tuesday. Jax isn't someone who's been important to any other part of Anakin's story, and given that Vader was very clearly happy to just be like, oh yeah, he can just die, I don't really care. it It's clear to me that he's not a nemesis, he's, he's just, you know, yet another target. Now, Jax describes the events that occurred at the end of Patterns of Force, the encounter between him and Vader, the exchange of Boda, the lack of exchange of Pyronium and I-5, regathering Larent, etc., etc., he identifies that as a lesson in hubris for Darth Vader. Of course, Anakin has already suffered through many, many, many lessons of hubris and has not learned the least bit humility from any of them, just rage and frustration. So, I don't think that's the lesson that Jax really wanted to have imparted. Now, we also get good demonstration of Vader's twin moods throughout the book. He's essentially icy and hot. He's contemptuous and furious and nowhere in between. When he's discussing anything with almost anyone, he's coolly dismissive of them, except for when they make an error or set themselves against him and he switches to the other end of the spectrum. And I think that his portrayal in those few scenes where he's present is generally pretty good. The... Clarification. The scenes in which he's present and interacting with his allies. The scenes in which he's present and interacting with Jax don't really work because they're trying to play up this personal relationship that I don't really buy into as a reader. Now, moving on to Jax, I have many complaints about him as well. I know, you are shocked. Many characters want to give him authority simply because he's a Jedi. The Top Rollins want to give him a fighter wing, the Coruscanti want to hand him all of Whiplash... And, to be fair, that does come up in several other places where a Jedi or a Force user shows up. But, like, Luke proved his worth by taking down the Death Star and is given the remains of the squadron he flew with. He doesn't get the job based on Force powers alone, he gets it based on demonstrable skill. I think a consequence of everyone wanting to listen to Jax and Hina's advice is that he doesn't listen to anyone else. Saul accuses Jax of wanting to win the war on his own, potentially in a single stroke against Vader. Uh and it's really weird, because if Jax is so afraid of Vader and wants nothing to do with him and to stay as far away as possible, this is like the third book in a row where he's like, I'm gonna hunt down Darth Vader and kill him. On the other hand, Tudensal also wants to win the war in a single stroke against Palpatine, but that's just. Tood and Saul being stupid and not necessarily aware of what's going on in his own mind. Now, this is just a bad writing trope. Jax uses the line, I'm the most dangerous person in the galaxy because I have nothing left to lose. Now, he does also have several obvious friendships and allegiance to Whiplash on the line. He has, like, a lot to lose. All he's lost is, I'm saying all he's lost is Larenth. But that hasn't been shown to be the most important relationship in his life. He spends so much more time interacting with Den and I-5, and he has so many more meaningful moments with them that we're simply told that Larenth is the most important person in his life. We're not shown it. And so again, this dynamic falls flat because we don't see that exchange of character where he grows with Larenth. We see him growing with I-5, we see him growing with Den, and we see him fighting with Larinth. Not fighting with her and having an argument, but in scenes of combat and occasionally there's some banter, but there's not really a deep relationship that is presented to us as a reader. He's also not really shown to be a hard anti-hero who will do whatever it takes to survive. I kind of see him as like a college grad who jumped into the real world too soon and has no idea how to swim. He has all sorts of edgy lines and moments, but his character is without edge. He's not going to hurt somebody if he can avoid it. He's not going to kill anybody other than potentially... Like, he is just a cinnamon roll, but he is supposed to be also very edgy and, like, grungy. And it just doesn't work for me. We do, however, get to see a bit of corruption in fall. Like Vader, he loses his partner and reacts angrily, but he doesn't have the power or confidence of Vader and doesn't charge forward into darkness, instead being a little bit more cautious. But Jax is apparently ready to abandon his friends, sign up with Black Sun, and risk his life in his quest for vengeance, so maybe there's hope for him being a dark side acolyte yet. He does at least acknowledge this corruption. The Dathomiri witches pull the knowledge of Darth Ramage out, but he still has his own demons to contend with. And I think that shows relatively impressive growth given the rest of his character. He also does change his mind on, or opinion on, becoming one with the Force. At the start of the series, he felt like that was just the same as being dead but with more steps because there's no sense of self. Now, potentially feeling Laren's distinct presence, or assuming her presence, which might be a bit more accurate, he feels that the identity of the individual remains within the living Force. Now, I just have a couple other critiques that I need to get to, and then we'll go back to a little bit more analysis and bits and bobs here and there. Larenth's death just seems cheap. As I was talking about previously, there doesn't seem to be a strong bond between the two of them. There are some moments where we're told that there's a relationship forming, but it's never really demonstrated as we see the relationship with both I-5 and to a lesser extent den build up over time. It's just not an emotionally resonant death, it's a character-building moment for Jax, she's just a prop in there. Uh, she's been presented as a cold femme fatale, and that's never really explored. We know she has some trauma from Fire Night shortly after the Purge, but we know pretty much nothing else about her. Plus, as I've mentioned, like, her relationship with Jax doesn't feel earned. Her feelings were visible, but Jax never, never demonstrated any toward her until the end of book three. And then we get to the start of this book, and her story ends. So we never really get to see that dynamic play out. And there's just not a lot to miss in her character being gone. Many characters in this story have that going on. Like, they just feel unearned. Uh, in particular, they feel... or presented to have unearned confidence and ego, Uh, but it's presented as simple confidence and ego, not unearned confidence and ego. Jax pretty much believes he's a superhero, even though he's a recently advanced apprentice, Tudensal thinks he can kill the Emperor when a bunch of Jedi masters failed, Shizor thinks he can manipulate and control a Jedi, Renan thought he could do the same, and Vader has similar assumptions and brashness. Vader's is really the only one that feels like it fits. Because the other is supposed to be empathetic with people or just generally cautious. And yet they make wild assumptions and leaps of faith and make decisions that are not based on logic and just based on raw supposition that everything will work out even though it has never proven to work out previously. And it does not make sense for Jax who's supposed to be a emotionally controlled Jedi or Shizor who thinks he's like he's supposed to be this cold hearted, cool minded mastermind, and Renon is demonstrated as a brilliant but cowardly researcher, and yet all of them are like, let's hit that big red button and just charge into battle, and it does not make sense. If everyone is supposed to be the smartest character in the room, nobody is. There are also lots of hinted at like plans and schemes which is a frustrating trope on its own because like you have the plan and then you see the plan having been executed and you don't get to see what happened that's just frustrating i want to know what happened i don't want to know just the consequences i'm reading the story for the story uh but we never really get to see the executions of those plans like i like seeing the all right i have a plan and then getting a montage in heist movies like that i'm okay with But we don't get enough information to evaluate the plans or tactics for the characters. We don't even get to see what the plan was after it's occurred. We just are like, oh, a bunch of rebels died after the attack on Palpatine. Cool. We don't really know why. We can't determine if it was bad luck or the character is dumb. And it doesn't allow me to get invested because I don't know what's happening. I want to see more of the thought process, not just the action. Again, this show, don't tell. There's also, in this book in particular, often a long delay between I have a plan and the plan went horribly wrong, with unrelated scenes in between those moments, and so they just don't land because you lose that connection. Also, this is a smaller quibble. The timeline seems somewhat messed up. Jack sees statues of, quote, Long dead imperial luminaries, but the empire is roughly a year old at this point. Unless Jax recognizes members of the Sith Empire from thousands of years ago and Palpatine has commissioned statues of Sith lords from a millennia ago, he and I have very different ideas of what long dead means. Uh, Furthermore, Tlinatha, who works as a waitress at the Oyubot and assistant to Tino Fabris, the Black Sun agent, on Mandalore, says that the Imperials haven't been to Keldabe in months, years, decades. The Empire has been around for a year, and Republic Commando places stormtroopers in Keldabe several months after the rise of Empire, so they have, in fact, been in Keldabe in months, years, and decades. Well, they haven't been around in years and decades because they haven't existed previous to that, but they've been around in months. And maybe she's just lying to him to, like, get kicks out of it, but, like... It, he just takes her at phase value. and be like, okay, Imperials haven't been here for a couple decades. Uh, again, it's just so convenient that the holocron that Jax inherited from his father happens to belong to a Sith who is researching Pyronium, which is extraordinarily rare, Boda, which is rare, unstable, not really recognized as a way to access the Force on a deeper level until recently, and time manipulate. Like, it's a super MacGuffin. It's just like, here are all the MacGuffins from the previous books. Let's just put them in one. Alrighty, we did it. It's a super MacGuffin. We also have some thinly veiled metaphor. After one of his force fits, uh, Jax destroys Laren's plant to him, which was a gift and the only thing he has remaining of her. And the Sith lightsaber, previously belonged to Ara Sing, is uh, revealed and directly in front of him. And I, we just don't really need such an obvious display of the scales becoming unbalanced the fit should be enough to say yep he's falling towards the dark side we don't need to have his connection to larynth destroyed and the sith lightsaber presented to him being like do you want to come to the dark side we have red crystals um we also have probus tesla is a weird and discordant character as i mentioned he wants to please his master he's insidious but not wormingly so he's not intelligent he's just massively subservient and is a doormat and even his apprentice walks all over him plus he's never really had any success in his missions. so i don't know why vader keeps him around again all we've seen are his failures so why like this is what i believe the character he's just a failure we're told that he was a great student but we haven't seen his success we've just been told like in two sentences oh yeah he was very good in class like okay but now that he's out here in the real world, he doesn't have the practical skills to make it happen. Also, the whole premise, or one of the major premises of the story, has a flaw the rescue of Thies on Yemen. At the beginning of Jedi Twilight, the first book in this series, Jax is in trouble with the hut crime lord Oroko because he brought in a Syrian prisoner who, without any tool or external aid, was able to kill himself through willpower alone. One would think that Yemen, knowing that he's been captured and overhearing what Vader and Tesla plan to do, especially when they wheel him into the medbay, would be able to do the same and would have the wherewithal to do so, given his attitude of strength and resistance to both Vader and Probus. In fact, there's probably a good chance that, like, if things played out realistically, he would have been like, Oh, well, that ship's destroyed. Anybody who knows that I've been captured is dead. I'm done for. They're just gonna torture me until they get information out of me, I should just remove this source of information from them. That's what should have happened. This plot just shouldn't have happened. Anyways, moving on to some miscellany. Uh, the story starts with the gang taking Yamon to Dantuin, or planning to take him to Dantuin, which makes it plausible that when Leia tells the Empire that there's a base there in A New Hope. They also went there by way of Top Rawa, which is where the plans for the Death Star pla- pass through, one of many, many locations. But those are both tightly linked to the Rebel Alliance, and so that's a nice little detail to have. Now, the vague predictions of the Cephalons and the way they perceive time reminds me of another better-written book and soothsayer, the K'tea from the Kingkiller Chronicles. I mispronounce that name wildly, but... If you read the King Killer Chronicles, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's mention of Eerie Cooley Disorder, ECD, unease when a human sees a droid that looks almost but not exactly like another human. Or a Star Wars name for the Uncanny Valley. Uh, we have the theme of choice is loss, indecision is all loss. And it's an interesting one to explore in the greater context of Star Wars. We see it in several different ways. Mason, his hesitation with Palpatine causes his death. Anakin's transformation to Vader is because when he hesitates uh, trying to balance between what he needs and what the Council wants from him, he begins to fall. You can see it in Lord Khan and the Brotherhood back in the Darth Bane trilogy, trying to balance a network of cooperation along with Sith competitiveness. Essentially choosing light or dark means that you lose the options of choosing a side uh, and the bonuses of either side and but because you're choosing neither you don't have control over your fate unless you walk that balance perfectly and most people as evidence can't really walk that balance and so they fall one direction once you start falling you kind of lose a fair amount of control. Now there's mention of a rhodium several times throughout the story. Now Back around the time frame of Cloak of Deception, 10 large ingots, but still small enough to hide in a concealable pouch on a person's body, were worth 3 billion credits. Jax pays for his drink with several erodium coins, which seems like a lot in that scale. Even if the coins are one millionth the size of an ingot, they're still worth 300 credits each, so one of these sources is misjudging the value of erodium. The Dathomiri witches have Cortosis-laced staves. I think the last time we saw Cortosis was in the Darth Bane trilogy, which Bane was mining as a youth. Its energy-resistant properties means that the salves of the Dathomiri witches can block lightsabers without being damaged or destroyed. Now, Dathomir is a matrilineal matriarchal society, and Magash, one of the women, has the following to say about men. Quote, They thought about eating, sleeping, breeding, working, and spending their few leisure hours playing games with abstruse rules that resulted in the winners mocking the losers. Which, to be fair, isn't that far wrong for, you know, humans and people in general. But it was interesting to see Jax take a stab at breaking Magus's ideology by asking why the men of Dathomir weren't educated as the women were. It's a good condemnation of gender-based societal expectations and highlights the fallacy of Other isn't doing X right now, which is because they're not given the opportunity or education, which would, you know, allow them to. Society is, you know, keeping them from having those opportunities, so clearly they're not going to take advantage of them because they don't have them. MAGA shows more growth in the two chapters she appears in than Jax does in the whole series. And she shows more emotion than Larenth, which makes her one of the best well-rounded characters in all four books. On, uh... Kentaros, Vader does take notice of I-5 in his R-2 form, either because of his force signature, which is indication that I-5 is becoming a real boy, or he's an R-2 unit and Darth Vader just has an eye out for R-2-D-2 because he misses his old buddy. Jax also does have a couple clever uses of force projection, my favorite being him using an image of Vader to stop an Inquisitor from killing him, allowing, in theory, allowing Vader the final blow against him jacks a very jujitsu move using the enemy's strength against them now if you enjoyed this book i jedi follows a force user on a very focused mission it's probably the closest comparison uh the force unleashed actually has some elements of like a rogue force user hiding from vader and helping grow the rebellion so that probably has a lot of overlap as well and of course there are the other preceding books and other books by michael reeves and maya catherine bonhoff Next time will be the Season 1 wrap-up. Who knew? You might not have even known that there were seasons, much less two complete seasons. Season 1 encompassed the first 11 episodes, The Old Republic, uh, and Season 2 is The Clone Wars and followed the next 30, concluding with this episode. We'll talk more about what to expect after that, during those episodes. I'm going to touch on every book read during those two seasons, along with some rankings, ratings, rantings, and ravings. It'll be a good time. If you like this episode and want to hear more of my ramblings, please be sure to check that box to like, subscribe, favorite, or whatever it is your app calls it, and check back in next time. You can contact me on Twitter at Jedi underscore archives, or email me at podcast at FatElfGames.com. I'm Jonah, and the archives are incomplete.